Hi, Crossroads. I'm Jessica. Thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. We are now into our fall sermon series, Believing Like Jesus, and thanks for coming over. And October is upon us. How many of you love October? I love October. And at Crossroads, that means one thing. It's time for Oktoberfest. Mark your calendars for Saturday, October 30th, because there's something for everyone. Clearly, I'm mentioning to the people who live within driving distance of Crossroads in Northern Colorado, October 30th, you are going to want to make your way here. In addition to the family party, we are offering an early access disability inclusion party as well as an after party on the patio. Of course, this community event will not be possible without you. We want every person who calls Crossroads home to be involved in making this event a reality. So stay tuned to learn more about how you can volunteer your time on a team, host a booth, or donate candy, or join as a community partner. Go to CrossroadsColorado.com slash Oktoberfest for all of the details. And for those of you who live abroad or too far to be with us in person, you can also donate candy. You can select a portion of your giving to support Oktoberfest. We want to host Northern Colorado big and have fun with all of these different options this year. We always include all of the links in the show notes, so be sure to come back later, access the Oktoberfest link, and also the Connect card. The Connect card is the best way for us to stay in touch, and there is a link in the show notes. Go ahead and fill out as much as you're comfortable filling out. If you're a regular listener, we love to know who you are also. And if you are new to the podcast, but you would like to connect, fill out your name, your email address, and drop a little comment in the comment section saying that I am part of the podcast, and I would love to say hi to you too. So one more thing before I hand it off to Ryan, there are digital talk notes in the show notes. There are fill-ins. If you like to click on a PDF, print it out and sit somewhere and fill it in. But we do recognize that many of you are listening to this in your car. It could be months from now. Um, You might be on a walk or a run and those show notes aren't going to do anything for you right at this moment. You can always go back to them later. Okay, well, here is Ryan in Believing Like Jesus. Well, go ahead and have a seat. Do me a favor, turn around and wave to somebody. Wave. I want to... Make sure to tell Isaac, don't drink my coffee right there. I left it there. <laughs> don't. Like, I was walking back and I was like, I think I left my coffee and my iPad sitting somewhere in the audience from earlier today. <laughs> and so uh, fortunately, the Dominas are sitting with it. And so I know that, uh, Dale, you'll beat up anybody that tries to take my Dunkin' Donuts pumpkin coffee. Don't let it happen today. So, well, I want to uh, welcome everybody who's tuning in online. If you're on the atrium or if you're here in the room, thank you so much for being here today. My name is Ryan, and I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And uh, we are in episode four, week four of our series, Believing Like Jesus. Do me a favor. If you have your pen and talk notes out, or if you're at home, you got your phone, whatever it might be, write this number down, 207 
607-608-1106. That's my cell phone number. If you're a guest today, if you've been around for a while, you want to have coffee and get to know one another, I would love to do that. And so just send me a text message if you have any questions uh, at all. Please do that. If they're difficult questions, I will send them over to Isaac, um, who uh, has volunteered to answer all the tough questions as part of his volunteer gig here at Crossroads in the future. So that's good. But uh, I'll also be up front here if you'd like to come and say hi. If I say something stupid, please come and uh, tell me. I'd be more than happy to argue with you about that. And, uh, and if I say something confusing, I'm sure that'll happen. Just come up and let's chat. Let's talk. Let's go on this journey together. I would, I would love to. I've enjoyed. Thank you to those of you that have taken the courage to send that text message to reach out because I have enjoyed having coffee and getting to know everybody. So our anchor verse for this series, the one that I encourage everybody to memorize uh, over, these next, over these eight weeks, is found in Hebrews chapter 12, a letter in the New Testament. And it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's the key part, fixing our eyes on, everybody say it out loud. You guys are like a good old-fashioned Pentecostal church. Like, I mean, right then, you just about blew me off the stage with that. It was like, I mean, that's, that's the easiest answer in all of church I just gave to you, right? Fixing our eyes on... Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So what that means, if you are brand new here to Crossroads, brand new to church, Bible, and why, why am I even here? And you're wondering, boy, he's good looking, but I don't, not me, the person you came with, I don't know if he's worth this. Like, I understand that completely. But here's the point. Like, we want to be a place that fixes our eyes, not on tradition. We don't want to fix our eyes on religion. We don't want to fix our eyes on rules or doctrines. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we believe that Jesus opens up our hearts and opens up our lives to a life of love and inclusion. And so we're looking at what is it that Jesus believed and, and how can we maybe believe like Jesus? Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite metaphor in your life? One that you like to use with your kids? Uh, I can remember when my kids were little and we would be teasing one another and I would say to them, you are so dead. Right? Now, my kids, fortunately, most of the time didn't believe that they were actually going to be dead. Right? They picked up that that was metaphor, right? That's kind of a simple little metaphor, right? Uh, you walk into a room exhausted, you collapse in your chair on the couch, and you say, I am so dead. Nobody's calling the ambulance, right? Nobody is taking that seriously. Uh, they might take it seriously, but then they know what it means, right? They know that this means you are very, very tired. And maybe you're a grumpy, tired person. And so maybe everybody knows that means leave them alone, right? But we have metaphors in our lives, and, and we do okay with them. And some are simple like that, and then some are big, right? Walt Whitman said this. He said, and your very flesh shall be a great poem. And your very flesh shall be a great poem. That does not literally mean that your flesh is going to become a poem, right? It could be if you tattoo one everywhere. I don't know. But the idea is that your life will be something of beauty. Your life will be something that inspires others, right? And so to, to use metaphors is to see something as something else, right? To help us understand it kind of quickly, to get the idea. And so we usually are pretty good at metaphors. Uh, you can think about your church, right? For example, right? A metaphor for a church could be, you could either say your church is a clubhouse or a lighthouse, and you kind of immediately get the connotation. There is a church, a place where we just kind of gather and hang out, and you got to have the right money, know the secret handshake, buy your way in, and then you're part of the club. Or is it a lighthouse, right? A space that points to hope to people that are traversing and traveling through some difficulties, right? What, what might that be? I just lost all of my notes, by the way, just so everybody knows that, up in the booth. And now I have You Give Life, You Were Love, what went to the next the closing song. And, and we're going to be here a while anyway. I can tell you right now, we will be here a long time without my notes on that back screen. 
a very, very long time. So we'll give them a second to get those notes back up on that screen. Or somebody can hand me their talk notes and I can preach from those talk notes too because I hopefully know the fill-ins as well. We'll see. Oh, thank you. We got, they're racing up here while they get that fixed. That's good. What are we talking about today anyway? <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, there's so many buttons in this house. There are so many buttons to get this stuff done. Like we just got to give it up for all the sound and light and tech people, right? <laughs> it's so good. So if you really want to know who's preaching, it's the person back there. Like if it goes too long, they just like start speeding the slides up. They're like, let's get this thing done with. You know what I'm saying, right? So here's the deal. We're, we're pretty good at metaphor, right? We're, we're pretty good at it. We recognize it in a lot of areas of our life. But there is an area that we're not too great at metaphor in, and that is in religion and theology. Right? When it comes to the things of God, we have a tendency to move into this space of deep literalism. We want certainty when it comes to God, but yet what we're given over and over and over again is metaphor, right? all throughout, especially the Gospel of John. So if you're familiar with the Bible, the Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They tell the story of Jesus, the good news, according to somebody we call John. Right? We're not really sure who John was. There's tradition, but at any rate, we call it the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is probably the latest of our Gospels, and, and, and whoever the author was had all kinds of time to think about it. And the Gospel of John is filled with metaphors, and they help us out, and we get some of them, right? So uh, the Gospel of John, it, John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, Lamb of God. Now, that's a metaphor. I just don't want anybody to be confused. Jesus did not have four hooves. Jesus didn't walk around going, bah, that was not... That's, it's, but it's a metaphor that made sense, particularly to people of a Jewish faith who would have understand lamb, they would have understand the Passover, they would have understood sacrifice and the whole realm, right? Another metaphor that we get from John chapter one is that Jesus is described as the word of God, the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and everything was created through the word. This is a metaphor to help us understand something about the nature of Jesus that the writer says, this is important if you're going to understand the good news of Jesus, that Jesus somehow embodied the very wisdom of God. And we're pretty good at that one. We're like, yeah, that's good. But uh, here's one that kind of we start to falter in is when we hear this metaphor that John gives us, Jesus is the son of God. Son of God. Now we want to go into literalism. We have spent the last 2,000 years arguing with one another about what that means. Not to mention that David was called son of God. Solomon was called son of God. Caesar was called son of God. Like this was a very well-known metaphor in the day. But we've lost our minds. We go crazy, right? We forget it. Now, why is that? Why, when it comes to religion, why, when it comes to faith and theology, are we no good at metaphor? Well, let's blame the Enlightenment. Right, if we're going to blame somebody, let's blame the Europeans. What do you say? Right? That's how we started this nation. Let's just keep it going. Right? No, listen, here's the deal. The Enlightenment certainly enlightened us, but it also darkened us in some ways. Because you and I all have Enlightenment brain. We might not realize it, but we do. And so the Enlightenment was this wonderful period, 17th, 18th century in Europe, where we kind of took some of the things we learned from the scientific revolution and started applying it to the social sciences. And we started saying, hey, wait a second. Maybe we can test some of our theories. Maybe there's some realms in which the church shouldn't have authority over. 
Maybe there's some areas that our politicians and our leaders shouldn't have authority over. And so we begin to question all kinds of things in, in terms of society. How do we form and, and manage society in a healthy way? And so during this season, we learned a lot about reason and debate, proof and repetition. The scientific method emerges, and we, and we apply it to the social sciences, and that's wonderful. And we start to see church, ecclesiastical power. We start to see political power kind of come into a bit of control and check and say, wait a second, there's some areas that, that, that our, our, our religious leaders really shouldn't have any, they don't really know what they're talking about there. And so in a sense, we, we are enlightened in a lot of ways. But what happens in this time is that we lost our ability to recognize the power of metaphor because we said, well, wait a second, all these ancient people, they aren't enlightened. I mean, look at how foolish they were to believe that the earth was created in seven days. Look at how foolish they were. Look at how foolish they were to say some of these things. And so we just assumed that the ancient people in our heritage of Christianity, that they took these stories literally. And so we just kind of started to abandon them. But what if they didn't take their stories literally? Like, what if ancient people actually accepted their stories as metaphor? What if they weren't under a delusion, but what if they actually were enlightened by their stories, that their stories brought to them truth and meaning? What if the idea of the sign of Jonah, as Jesus talks about, so Jesus, at one point, he talks about the sign of Jonah. Like, maybe Jesus didn't believe that Jonah was literally swallowed by a whale, because Jesus knows people don't get swallowed by fish. But maybe there was deep meaning and deep truth in that. And so as we kind of walk into these next few weeks, I want to kind of set this up in that as we start to say, well, what did Jesus believe about God? We have to recognize that everything we say is a metaphor, everything. And the only word that can be actually literally used when we talk about God, the only word is God. <laughs> That's the only literal word we have. So when we say God, we know what we mean, this great mystery that we'll never fully understand as human beings. It's just beyond our wildest imaginations. So we recognize that whatever, whatever land we go into, we're dealing with metaphor. We're dealing with seeing as is. And we have to then dig deep. We have to dig deep to understand what the metaphor would have meant to a first century Jew. Not necessarily what the metaphor means to us, because we'll get rid of metaphors really fast, because we go, oh no, that's a bad one. And that might be true, but we have to dig deep and say, well, what did Jesus mean when he maybe used a metaphor? What was Jesus saying? What was the culture that he was in? What did it mean to be a, a Jew in the first century, a peasant? What did it mean to be facing a Roman occupation, these metaphors, right? What, what shaped those? And even though I believe deeply that God is this beautiful mystery, that what we call God uh, is something that we can't fully grasp, we ought to name it, <laughs> We ought to take the time to publicly say these are the metaphors, these are the ways in which we talk about God that convey what we believe is the spirit and character of God. So here's the question. What was the foundational, fundamental metaphor that Jesus used when Jesus thought about God? Right now, if you could for one second take thousands of years of history that have told us Jesus is God. That they've given us that statement, and I'm all for that confession of faith. But can we just dismiss that for a second and just say, if Jesus thought and taught about God, what was the foundational metaphor that Jesus would have wanted his followers to imagine and think about? And I think that foundational, fundamental metaphor would be Father. Father. And I think it's 
I think it's the foundational one because when Jesus teaches uh, about prayer, about the communicating with this God, relating with this God, right? How do you stay in connection with this God? Prayer, he uses the word Father, Abba. And we can trace this back, and we believe this is a really, this does go back to the historical Jesus, because Paul, in his letter to the Romans, talks about an Abba prayer, Abba, the Greek word for Father. And we know that Jesus would have prayed this in Aramaic. Uh, this, the, the, the version that we have in Matthew and in Luke have been shaped by the writers. They've been, it's been turned into beautiful poetry, but we know this was the fundamental metaphor. So in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, Jesus is teaching on prayer. And this is what Jesus says, according to Matthew. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners so that others may see them. Amen. I say to you, they have received their reward. He says, in other words, there's one model of prayer in connection with God, and that is to get up in front of everybody and use big words and impress people. Nobody, not even God, knows what you just said. <laughs> But it was so impressive, right? It's so impressive. He says, but also when you pray, don't be like that. Go into your inner room. Don't worry about the words you say. Close the door behind you and pray to your father in secret. And your father who sees in secret will meet you there, will repay you, right? Will honor this moment. I, I'll tell you, be honest with you, this is huge for me. I just put a lot of faith in this because I don't, I don't know how prayer works, <laughs> but I know I've experienced the presence of God and I trust that God meets me there, that God is user-friendly. <laughs> That's my mantra. God is user-friendly. And if God isn't user-friendly, we're all in trouble, all right? And so Jesus says, don't like, now he says, but here's another thing. This is another way that people go about this. He says, when you pray, don't babble like the pagans who think they'll be heard because of their many words. So forget about the big words. Now let's talk about the many words. You're like, yeah, Ryan, let's talk about the many words. Let's keep this thing short. Kickoff's at 11. It's not going to happen. It's already 10.55, people. I know you're looking at your watch. That's what they always tell you, by the way. If you're a preacher, never draw attention to your watch. That's what they say. Oh, well. They say, don't babble on. Don't do that. Don't babble on the page because they think if they just babble on and on and on, they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you even ask. Just relax. And so Jesus then gives us this prayer that has been named differently according to different Christian traditions. And he says, this is how you are to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We'll stop right there. Our Father, hallowed be your name. So Jesus says, when you pray, talk to God and say, our Father. So what did Jesus mean by this word, Father? This is very male, patriarchal language. What is that all about? And I want to ask the question, what did this word mean for Jesus? Because it means something different for all of us. Depending upon your experiences with a father on earth, <laughs> that will shape what you think about a father in heaven. And, and again, we have to, I go back to what I said earlier, this is metaphor, so we can't, this is an engendered term for us. This has all kinds of emotion, all kinds of weight. And so I want us to just remember we're talking about metaphor but we have to ask the question, not what does the metaphor mean to you or to me based on my experience, but what would it have meant to Jesus? And so I want us to own some of this reality that, that we, we do want to put in check some of these metaphors because the word father, the way that's been used, the way that patriarchal language has been used to oppress women for thousands of years, it is time for us to have a conversation about it and maybe even to not use the word. But before we do that, 
can we understand what it meant so that if we replace it with a different metaphor, we're at least saying the same thing. Because I would submit that it's not enough to just use the word parent. There's something else going on here, and we'll get to that here in about 45 minutes, okay? So hang in there. (laughs) Just kidding. So first thing we got to understand is in in the patriarchal world of the Bible, this word father was not always an exclusive term. So by exclusive, it's not saying only fathers, right? So male language all throughout the Bible, there are inclusive male languages because male language because of the patriarchal nature of it. And then there was exclusive language. So there are times when scripture is teaching or somebody's teaching in the Bible or writing, and they literally mean men only or male. That doesn't mean they're right, by the way. That doesn't mean it's for all time. It just means we recognize that there are moments where that is the case. But there's a lot of times where father is actually shorthand for father and mother. It's shorthand for those that would have authority inside of a household. So the inclusive father was not just a parent, but it was a householder. And that's where I want to start with this big metaphor. I want to get this idea of a householder. A great place to see this at work is in Deuteronomy chapter 5, which actually doesn't use the word father or mother. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses is giving uh, the law of the Sabbath, the day that everybody rests, right? And in, Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says, six days you may labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath of the Lord your God, Okay. Now, here's, hold on to the question, who's you in this sentence? Who's the you? Everybody say, who's the you? I know this message is boring, so I got to keep getting you involved, right? You're falling asleep on me, okay? All right, who's the you? Is the you a male father? The householder? Well, let's find out. Who gets to rest? All right, so here's what it says. You singular shall do no work, okay? Still doesn't tell us who the you is, okay? Either you or your son or your daughter. So it's not the son or daughter. That's not who's being spoken to here. Your male or female slaves. Yes, when this was written, households would have servants and slaves. Not saying that's right. It just is what was. Your your ox or your donkey. So Moses isn't talking to the ox or the donkey. Or any work animal or the resident alien within your gates. All these people can't do work so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. Here's my, my proposal is that you can't possibly just be the male household leader. Why? Because the female household leader, the wife or the mother, is not mentioned anywhere in there. Does she have to keep working while everybody else is off? Some of the ladies are like, yes. <laughs> They're like, that has been my story. <laughs> this is my song, right? You know it. But listen, here's the thing. There is an implicit and included within that you, both male and female householders, all right? So that's, I think, a great just sample. So this householder is not exclusively the father, right? But it is inclusive. It's this idea of the householder, the one who is responsible for the care of all of these things, right? You're not allowed to work, and nobody else is allowed to work on this day. This is a day of rest. Now, when you think about household, you cannot think about your household or my household, even if you have a big household. Because in Jesus' world, in the world of Deuteronomy, a household would have been massive. There would have been wives. There would have been children. There would have been married children. There would have been fields to tend. There were all kinds of stuff that would have been a part of a tribal existence 3,000 years ago. All things that would have even existed 
even in the time of Jesus in certain areas, when you think of a household. So the biblical concept of household is not me, my spouse, one or two kids, maybe a .5 in there, a dog and a cat and a white picket fence, right? It was a much bigger, broader, broader reality, right? Now, if you combine that idea of a householder who has property, a piece of land, and you combine that with Jesus' tradition that held very, very strongly that the entire earth had one divine owner, okay? So the entire earth has one divine owner combined with the fact that all these little people own properties, right? We're, gonna, we're starting to get a picture here. So Leviticus chapter 25, God says this to the people, the land shall not be sold irrevocably, In other words, you're not allowed to take the land that I've given you. By the way, land is a big deal in the Bible. (laughs) If you want to know the point of the Bible, it's land. (laughs) It really is the Old Testament. It's just huge. So so here's the thing. God says, you can't take the land that I've entrusted to you and sell it off to somebody because you went into debt and give it. You can't do that. That's not how this works. For the land is mine, literally is mine. That was deep in the heart of the Jewish imagination about God, that all of this is God's. We are simply resident aliens. And we are under God's authority. So you can't sell the land. Now, this brings up the big tension that we experience in the Hebrew Scriptures. The tension between the Psalms and the tension between the Pentateuch that says, go up to Jerusalem and worship and celebrate the festivals and make sure here's all the sacrifices and here's all the things you're supposed to do. And the Psalms that rejoice in praying and worshiping and all of these kind of religious practices. And then you have the prophets who are like, shut up. Like, stop it. I don't want to have anything to do with these things. Like, the, like, there's this deep tension. And the tension arises because, oh, you've gone and you've worshiped God, but you've completely ignored the fact that God desires the world to look a certain way. And you're supposed to be the firstborn. Israel's called the firstborn of God. You're supposed to show the way. But you're moving borders and boundaries, and you're stealing property from one another, and you're doing all this crazy stuff. And so the prophets are always calling Israel to task, saying, you're not living out the justice and righteousness of God. And so these two words, justice and righteousness, are key words for you. As you kind of embrace and read through the Bible, when you see justice and righteous inside of uh, the Old Testament tradition, these are basically the slogans that summarize the character of God. And it's all within this realm of how should the earth be dealt with, justly and rightly. And it points to what we call the distributive justice of God. That this is all God's earth. Like our borders and boundaries really mean nothing to God. (laughs) Like let's just make that one clear. I'm a deep believer. That doesn't mean we don't carry responsibilities for our borders and boundaries. It means that those are false impositions for the person of faith. That for the person of faith who recognizes that the earth is God and the fullness therein, we recognize that our borders and boundaries are myths. And that we believe one day those borders and boundaries will be removed under the great care of God through God's people. And that metaphor, that's what we're striving towards, right? So, so to say that is this, like the biblical vision of God is that we would answer this question, does everybody have enough? Does everybody have enough? And what happens in the Old Testament tradition is that a lot of times people don't have enough. And I know that that's not the case now in our world. Everybody has enough. There's nobody going for for lack of anything. Nobody's being exploited by the wealthy these days. We've nailed it. I mean, these poor people in antiquity, they just couldn't get it. But we are so enlightened. No. (laughs) 
We continue to live out this reality. So like a great example of this is Isaiah 58, six through seven, that says, is not rather this the fast that I choose, right? Your fast, your holy days, but what I want is that you would release those that are bound unjustly, untying the thongs of the yoke, set free the oppressed, break off every yoke. Is it not that I want you to share your bread with the hungry? Is it not that I want you to bring the afflicted and the homeless into your houses? It's funny how we want to be literalists except for these verses. Well, we get the metaphor totally on this one. I'll just write the check. It's like kind of quiet just then. Because <laughs> most of us aren't, bring, aren't bringing the homeless into our homes. Like, let's just be really honest. But this is the cause, right? Clothe the naked when you see them. Don't turn your back on your own flesh. Does everybody have enough? This is God's radical vision for the world. And there's the special care that God gives to those that are socially, structurally, and and systematically vulnerable. And in the time when the Old Testament was written, in a tribal society where you had royal elite and you had everybody else, there were three people, three groups of people, widows, orphans, and resident aliens that were at risk. And so... The scriptural tradition is that widows, resident aliens, and orphans are always given special attention because they are deeply at risk in this culture. Now, where in the world would the ancient Israelites get this idea (laughs) that God wants to care for the whole world, that everybody, not just the Israelites, but everybody on the the world, in in the earth, should have their fair share? Where we get, they get this idea, and I think it really does come because they would have looked at a good household and they would have said, this has to be what God wants. They would look at, at a household and they said, this is how a well-run household looks, right? That you would walk into this homestead and if you saw fields that were well-kept, animals that were cared for, you saw that all the kids were well-fed, all the kids had clothing, right? You'd see uh, pregnant women being cared for. You would see those that might be sick being given special attention. Like there's just this reality that we know that's what a well-run household should look like. If you walked into a household and you saw seven children, five of which were being very well cared for, but two were being completely neglected, you'd go, that sounds not right about that. The fields are in disarray. The animals aren't being cared for. They're being overworked. Right? We would know like instinctively there's something messed up about that. And so this well-run household, I think, becomes a microcosm in the Jewish imagination for a, well, a well-run world. So if God is the divine landholder of everything, and, and in the patriarchal language of the day, that would have been understood as father, but it wasn't just that, that men were only householders, that's not the case. What did Jesus believe? Why would Jesus say, well, here's the thing. I think that at the end of the day, Jesus prays and called God Father in heaven because he believed that God was the just householder of the world house. That that was the dominant metaphor for Jesus, that this whole world is God's, that God is just, that God wants everyone to have enough. And when we look at, and, and we won't do this today, but when you look at the, the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father, or whatever it might be, like you see, what is it driving home? <laughs> it's driving home equity. It's driving home justice. It's the forgiveness of debts. It's daily bread for everyone. It's heaven on earth. 
It's this beautiful image. And so here's the thing. I think we could, if we wanted to, if you needed to, because the word father brings baggage and brings hurt and brings pain, you could replace father with the word householder. And we would capture the essence of it. A good householder, a householder that cares for and understands equity, a householder that cares for and understands that all people should be cared for, that all animals should be cared for, that all the earth should be cared for. That's the beauty of it. And so if we were to look at Jesus' whole tradition, which again, we can't go through all of this, but there are kind of three big, big metaphors, big things that a householder, a father would do. And the householder or the father was seen as a creator, a protector, and a provider. Over and over again, if you just like did a Google search on like, you know, Bible.com or wherever you go, and you just type in the word father, and you look and see, you'll see a lot of times these are the big images, creator, protector, provider. So those would have been at the forefront of Jesus' imagination when he says, our father, our protector, our creator, our provider. So in your own mind, everyday normal life, right? What does this mean? Well, if we, if we actually get a hold of this, we should believe and behave like Jesus. So believe, just like Jesus, that I'm an heir of that divine, just household. I'm an heir of the just householder. Paul says this in Romans when he writes to the church in Rome. He had never been there. He's writing kind of his theological understanding of things. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, he says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For those that choose to accept what is available to them, they are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption through which we cry, Abba, Father. This is a a reference to this prayer that Jesus would have taught over and over again that was handed to Paul, this Abba prayer, that there is something about making a conscious choice to live in the Spirit of God. I believe every one of us has been given the Spirit of God. What we make is a choice. Do I want to live in the Spirit of God? Do I want to cry and see God as Father, as the caretaker and householder, or do I want to live after myself? And this spirit that we then lean into, that we surrender to, that we live out in the midst of as Christians, tells us that we are children of God. And if children, we are heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If only we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There is this reality that to take on this vision, this radical view of the world from God will produce suffering in our lives. So if we accept that we are an heir and household of this divine just householder, then we have to recognize that God is our model. God is our model. How would you learn to be a good householder? The householder would bring you in. They would mentor you. Sons and daughters, they would say, let's go. Let's learn what it means to take care of everything. Jesus brings this up when he talks about love that God is our model. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 45 through 48, he, he's talking about how do you love the people that are just nasty to you? How do you love those that you see as your enemy? How do you resist them? And, and Jesus is talking about you don't resist violently. You love your neighbor. You love your enemy. You pray for those who persecute you. Now, why do you do that? Jesus says, so that you may be children of your heavenly father, children of the divine householder, an heir, And you have to then do what the heir does. He makes the sun rise and fall on everybody, the good and the bad, and causes the rain, which is a good thing, by the way, in this culture, 
to fall on the just and the unjust. It took me a long time to realize that rain was a good thing. It's kind of like living in Colorado. We first moved out here, and like within three weeks, there was like this overcast, rainy all day. Got into the office for staff meeting, and everybody's like, isn't it amazing outside? I was like, what are you talking about? It's awful outside. Because whereas there's 300 days of sunshine in northern Colorado, there's 300 days of rain in New England, right? But in a society that's grounded in a desert, rain falls on everybody. This is the love of God. It's universal. It just is there. And so, so Jesus says, be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. Not morally perfect, but perfect in love perfect in grace. And then as heirs of this householder, we are responsible to act as providers. We're to act as providers. In this biblical world, house of God, there were those three groups that were especially vulnerable. The poor and the needy in a rich society would have been very vulnerable. Widows and orphans in a patriarchal society were very vulnerable. Resident aliens in a tribal society were very vulnerable. Deuteronomy gives us a great example of how God feels about what we're supposed to do. You don't exploit the poor and the needy hired servants. This is real stuff for today. Like, this is, has to engage as a believer. I'm going to get in so much trouble right now. I mean, because we're running out of time, I'm going to say this. I probably shouldn't even say it, but listen. Like, if, if as followers of Jesus, our economics look just like the rest of the world, there's a problem. And so when we enter into conversations about living wages, when we enter into conversations that deal with social realities of people that are vulnerable, like our faith has to drive that, not the economic engines of our political parties, not, the, not my own personal account, but this, this, there's a driving force that's different than the American dream. And it's God's dream for the world. And I know that that's challenging and that doesn't mean that I am not grateful to be an American. I'm tired of being told that. I'm tired of everything around me saying, because I question some of the values of my culture because I'm a follower of Jesus, that somehow I don't appreciate what I've, been, what I've been born into. I do. I deeply appreciate that. I'm deeply grateful for that. But I, again, like last week, I don't want to live in that second dome. I desperately want to get to that third dome. And if you weren't here last week, you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Fair enough. Deuteronomy says, don't deprive the resident alien or the orphan of justice. Don't do that. And remember, these aren't cases of personal incompetencies. It's not that widows were incompetent. It's not that orphans were incompetent. How many of y'all think Jesus was incompetent? Just want to give everybody an opportunity to respond to the Spirit. <laughs> Tradition says that Joseph died very early on in Jesus' life. So Jesus would have been labeled as an orphan in this culture because to not have a patriarchal figure of your life left you as an orphan. So please don't think that orphan or widow or resident alien is somehow a person of incompetence or incapacity. It simply means that in patriarchal and tribal societies, these structures were easy to oppress certain groups and therefore they became weaker members of the family. And God says they're under special care, which is why it's important that we think today, what are the groups that need special care? What are the groups that society has pushed to the margins and made vulnerable? And they need special care. It's why I don't buy into, oh, let's just treat everybody as individuals. 
I just don't buy into that because God didn't. I mean, forgive me. But God, all throughout the scriptural tradition, the biblical tradition, identifies the groups that systemically made people vulnerable. And so we, I think, as the people of God, ought to still do that. We should identify those groups and understand what systemically makes them vulnerable and what is the special care and concern that the householder of the world calls his heirs to. And if we'll do this, if we'll really take seriously this God as Father, as householder, and live it out, you know what happens? It's so beautiful. Like all those things in the Lord's Prayer that we pray, when we actually believe like Jesus did and we behave like heirs, guess what happens? Everybody has daily bread. Everybody gets daily bread. Everybody becomes free of debt. Everyone lives on earth as in heaven. And in that moment, God's reputation will truly be hallowed. In that moment, the name of God becomes great. The name of God becomes great. And that's what it means to hallow the name of God. That there will come a point in time, I believe, through the people of God, not through some external interest, but when the people of God get serious about living as heirs, that all the earth will sing God's praise, that there will be one, one throne room. I believe that, that every nation, tribe and, tribe, and tongue will sing the praise of God. I believe that metaphor deeply, but I believe it happens when we participate as heirs to bring out God's radical vision, not Christian doctrine. God's radical vision of enough for everybody. It's late. Y'all know that, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap it up. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give you a blessing. You've already missed kickoff. Right? So can we just be in this moment together for a minute? And uh, can you tip the, the children's workers today? Just give them some special love, all right? Because I think it's worth just pausing and reflecting on this and not being in a rush. And we had a lot going on today as we celebrate Isaac, and, and there, there's going to be the reception there, and we'll do that. But we're going to close with this song and this blessing that says, Great Are You, Lord. And I want to close on this song because there is a part of this song that says, All the earth will sing your praise. All the earth will eventually do this, but it's not going to happen because we prayed hard and God decided to someday intervene from some outside of the world. It's going to happen when the heirs of God truly live it out and we start to make decisions and we take seriously this prayer and our call to action from it. So just take a breath. If you have to go, please go. I I apologize. But just take a breath and, and just be in this moment together. And when it gets to that part, all the earth will shout your praise. All the earth will shout the praise of God when the people of God start acting like the heirs of God. That's when it happens. And finally, thank you to everyone for regular giving to support the work of our church. Our giving goes toward making events like Oktoberfest possible. We also know that the regular practice of financial generosity is an important part of our own spiritual health. 
We want to make generosity simple and convenient. To give by mobile app, text the word CROSSROADS to 833-270-1344. You can also choose to give on Venmo by searching for Crossroads Colorado on there and you'll see our little orange dot. Or you can go to our website at crossroadscolorado.com slash give. For giving in person or by mail, you'll find a giving envelope in your program or with quarterly letters that come. There is so much happening right now with Crossroads. Keep your eyes on the weekly program as well as our feed e-newsletter. Both resources will keep you up to date and in the know. Thank you again for being an inclusive and generous part of the Crossroads Network of Peacemakers. We hope you have a great week.